Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. As we start this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I'm going to tell you before I ask the question, it's somewhat revealing. And so you got to look around at the people around you, like, do I want these people to know this about me? Totally understand that. But I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. If you remember milk carton kids, will you raise your hand? Remember when they used to put missing children on the back of milk cartons? All right, I see some young people. I see some other people in my demographic. All right, I got you. Here's why that's revealing. There's a phenomenon in our society that people who've never seen an actual milk carton with a missing child on it believe that they've seen that before because it's become such a part of our culture as a whole. So some people subconsciously think they've seen it even though they've never seen it. Here's what you can know if you've seen it. If you were born before these dates, it started in 1984. It ended, some people say around the end of the 1980s, but probably the last ones were in the early 1990s. And so if you were born in the mid-1990s or later, you've never seen this on a milk carton as you're sitting there eating your cereal in the morning. But you may have thought that you did. Now, the rest of you were telling the truth, and uh, thank you for identifying with my demographic. But if you've never seen it before, here's a picture of one right here. Uh, the young man on the left was the first young person to ever appear on one of those. He was a paper boy that went missing. And these ran for a little while. Now, if you read about this, what you'll find is this was the Amber Alert before there was an Amber Alert. Some people say the reason why they stopped doing this was because of Amber Alerts. Now, if you put the dates together, you can figure out. No, no, this, this happened. Before, they stopped doing this before the Amber Alerts came out. And so, so why is it this happened? And different people debate why. Some people say because it wasn't that successful of a campaign. They didn't find a lot of the children. But some people believe the reason why they stopped it was because kids were getting scared as they were eating their breakfast and seeing abducted children on the back of the milk carton. Now, why am I sharing this with you? The passage of Scripture that we're looking at is talking about two missing kids. One's the more popular one, and that's the one we talked about last week, the younger brother. Jesus is telling a story about a father who's got two missing kids, but one of them doesn't know that he's missing because he's still living in the house. Can you imagine what it would be like if you looked at the back of a milk carton, saw a picture, and then realized, that's me, and didn't even know you were missing? Because that's what this passage of Scripture is supposed to do to the listeners today. We're in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we're picking up what we left off last week in this passage of Scripture. The main point's the same thing as it was last week, and here's what it is. God's coming after you. God's on a pursuit of you, on a pursuit of your heart. He's relentlessly pursuing you, and the question you have to answer is, what will you do about His pursuit of you? How will you respond to that pursuit? Now, if you weren't with us last week, that's okay. Let me give you uh, just kind of a recap. If you watch Netflix, sometimes they let you skip the intro. We don't have that option here. But here's, here's what I'm going to give you, like, what happened in the last episode. Jesus is telling these stories. There's these sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees that are gathered together. And Jesus starts telling these stories about how our Heavenly Father loves lost things. How a shepherd goes after lost sheep, and they increase in intensity and value each time. How a woman goes after lost coins. Then how a father goes after his lost sons. The first son is who we looked at last week. He's probably the more popular. He probably would be the more popular person if you met him, by the way, just in, in life. But he's the more popular story because oftentimes what we do is we talk, talk about the, even your Bibles probably say the prodigal son, the son who ran away from home, then comes back. What happens is, you've got to remember they're in an honor-shame culture. This younger brother goes to his father and says to his father, who's his authority in the hierarchical situation? He's got all authority. He's got authority over his life. And he says, Dad, 
I want right now my inheritance, which would be about a third of the estate. And if you read the story, you find out they're wealthy. There's a fattened calf. It's so big that you can have 200 people on the property and somebody not know that's happening there. There's a robe. Like, there's all this stuff that's happening that shows you the wealth of this father. He says, I want a third of all my stuff right now before you're dead. And scholars tell us that it'd be like going to your dad and saying, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I wish you were, it's essentially spitting in his face. Now, the dad has authority to have the son stoned to death based on Deuteronomy probably likely would have him put in prison, at the very least have him beaten. But remember this story, it's not really about either one of the sons, it's about our heavenly father. And the father says, here's your stuff. And we saw last week that sometimes God gives us what we want, when what we want is not him, in order to show us what we need, which is him. And so some of you can testify to that in your own life. You've got, you've got the marriage you want, you've got the job you want, you've got the house you want, you've got all the things you wanted, and you still feel empty inside. Sometimes God gives us what we want when what we want is not him in order to show us what we need, which is him. And that's what happens with this son. The father gives, graciously gives him what he wants, and he runs off, and he wastes it. And you've probably heard, if you've heard the story taught before, Sunday school preached that he was wasting on prostitutes, he's out at the bars, drugs, like it's a big mess. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible just says it was reckless living. All reckless living means is he was making decisions without thinking about the consequences. Ever done that? I've done it. I think we've probably all done it. And it's okay to interact with me today, just so you know. I gotta say that like every week, but it's okay every week. And so what this guy does, he goes and he waits until he runs out of money. Then it says that he comes to his senses. He sees himself first because conviction comes before conversion. He sees himself, he sees the state that he's really in, then he remembers the goodness of his father, and he runs back to the father with a planned speech, and the planned speech was, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, treat me as one of your servants. And he gets to his father, and his father runs to him, wraps his arms around him, starts kissing him, and he says his speech, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and then the father stops him, because he's not a, not a slave in the house, he's a son in the house. And he says, give him my robe. Give him the best robe. It'd be the Father's robe, follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. If you believe on the name of Jesus Christ, he's giving you the right to be called a child of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that when you place your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. And you know the robe that you wear? You don't wear the robe of your own righteousness. You wear the robe of Jesus' righteousness. So he's given the robe to wear, and then he's given a ring. A ring would be the signet ring. It would be the authority and the family, and you have been given the right to be called a child of God. You're part of that family. And he didn't have shoes on his feet, and the father said, give him some sandals, give him some new shoes, give him some kicks. My interpretation. Here's why, because you're not going to be a slave in my house. You're a son in my house with full access to everything that it means to be a son not working for my love, not working for my affection. You don't earn it. It's like Pastor Seth was saying, you can't, you can't make God love you more. You can't make God love you less. You are just my son. Kill the fattened calf. We're having a party. 200 people would show up for this party. Think about that. That would be the size of an entire village, an entire town then. The whole town is there. And, and if you do watch shows on Netflix, and you, you just, that's the recap. We just, you skip button. Now we're past the recap. I don't know what kind of shows you watch. But do you ever watch a show and then it says, three months later, or in the kind of shows that I'll watch. In Munich, Germany, because it's like action movies, like right, it always ends up in Europe somewhere, or if it's really bad, in Chechnya, like there's something going on there. Yemen, like here's what happens. If you're, if you're coming to this passage of Scripture today, it would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. 
Because there's a character we haven't talked about yet. That's the older brother. Look at it. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. (laughs) They weren't Baptist. And he called one of the servants. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Asked what these things meant. What are they doing out here? Maybe he was Baptist. Anyway, and what what does this mean? And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So his father coming out to plead with him. But we don't even get words from the father. Look at how rude, disrespectful, and angry this son is. What we see here is not just in this moment anger, okay? This is years of pent-up anger, and now this is like the straw that broke the camel's back. Here it comes out. But he answered his father. Remember, we're in an honor-shame culture. He doesn't even call him father. Look! These many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I don't want to celebrate with you. I don't want to celebrate with my family. I want to celebrate with my friends, and you haven't given me what I deserve. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, isn't that an interesting title for your brother? Parents, your kids ever do something that makes you so angry that you say to your spouse, look what your son just did. Like, your DNA's in there, and it's evident in this moment. This son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, really, how do you know that? You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, the father speaking, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. In fact, you could literally translate this, it was necessary It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now here, oftentimes what happens with this is that we ignore this brother. And that's one of the reasons why he's less popular, or maybe he's just not that likable. Like, who's dancing? Who's dancing around? Just not that fun to be around. Whatever reason, historically what's happened is that we don't talk about the two sons in this passage. We only talk about one. In fact, I'll tell you just honestly, the temptation for me last week was to preach about the prodigal son that's more exciting to preach about. They rejoice and he comes back. We see what happens. There's resolution to it. And then just kind of wedge the older brother in, like just make the sermon go five more minutes and say, if you're an older brother, don't do these things and here's what it's like. And, but I think God's got a message for us about the older brother here. And I think there's a hard thing about the older brother is that nobody wants to identify with him, especially if you've grown up in church. Because you've been taught, everybody hates, the, everybody hates the Pharisees. If you know the Bible, like the Pharisees, when they come in, minor tune, dum, dum, dum. Like here comes the Pharisees. Bad guys are here. They're against Jesus. Some of Jesus' harshest words are for Pharisees. You whitewash tombs. You got dead men's bones on your heart. But on the outside, you clean it up. Everything looks great. You look at this guy. He's respecting his community. He works hard. Got a good family. Good job. Good heritage. Not immoral. He identifies with, and remember who this passage is too? If you've got your Bible, go back. Go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 uh, in there. And if, if you've got the app, you can scroll up on there, and we'll put it up on the screen. Remember, this is a made-up story. This isn't a real story. Jesus is teaching. But there's a real thing that's happening. It's verses 1 and 2. You can't understand the parable if you don't realize 1 and 2. Go verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. We love that, right? Like, it's like, like, anybody come to church. We love that. People didn't like that then. 
Because when we hear sinners, we hear, like, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory. We're all sinners. We can identify with that. If I said, is anybody here not a sinner? 99.9% of you would raise your hand. One guy wouldn't raise his hand, not because he thinks he doesn't sin, because he wouldn't raise his hand no matter what I asked, okay? It just happens. You might be that guy, just rebellious spirit. I got it. Totally understand. I'd probably be that guy if I wasn't up here being this guy, okay? But sinners then was, it was a group of people that were considered too unclean to worship at the temple. Shepherds, prostitutes. They'd be, if this was the temple, when they were coming in today, somebody would stop me. Not, not you. Not you. You can't come in here. Not you. And then tax collectors. If you grew up in church, you were probably taught that tax collectors, they stole money from you so nobody liked them. Like they'd collect the taxes for Rome and they'd collect a little bit more for themselves. And, but in your heart, you probably think, well, I could forgive that. Let me tell you something. There's nobody like a tax collector in our culture. To be like a tax collector from the Bible would be the equivalent of this. ISIS or some terrorist group comes and takes over America. They kill one of your kids, crucify him on 540, put it out there so that everybody can see who's got the authority. And Rome did this, by the way. I'm talking about Rome right now. Crucified him on the road, raped your wife, beat you, and then your next door neighbor decides, I need a good job. I'm going to go raise money for them. And becomes, he's American, but starts to work for ISIS collecting money, stealing your money from you. So that is true, what you've heard. It's just not enough. And so the tax collectors, you and I would hate, we'd be mad at them. But if you think about the worst person in our culture right now, whoever that might be, mass shooters, somebody else you're just disgusted by. And that's how the Pharisees feel about tax collectors. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, Jesus is with that guy? That guy who did that to me and to us? The worst kind of traitor there is. He grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What's he doing? And then Jesus tells these stories about lost things. But he's teaching to them. So they would then see themselves. This passage, you talk about the milk cart. It's kind of like, have you ever seen a police sketch before? There's a crime that happens. Nobody got it on their phone, and so somebody will say, like, somebody saw it, and the police will come to them with an artist and say, well, how tall was he? What kind of hair did he have? What, what color is his skin? How light? How dark? How, how, how much did he weigh? About how old do you think he was? And after they get all that description, they come up with this sketch, and they show, based on all the characteristics that were given, this is what we think this person would look like. That's what this passage of Scripture is like. And we're meant to look at it and go, is that me? Because we see these different characteristics of this older brother here. The first one is this that we'll talk about today. Older brothers oftentimes are unaware of the weight of their sin. Older brothers oftentimes are unaware of the weight of their sin. And you see in this passage of Scripture, in this made-up story that Jesus gives, he gives this guy that's just generally unaware. Like, think about that. Have you ever been just generally unaware? This guy comes home. There's a party at his house. Okay, the whole town's there. 200 people are there at this party. And the father says at the end of the story, everything I have is yours. Like, this is his stuff they're using, okay? And it says he heard some dancing, heard some, what is that? It's called a party, buddy. <laughs> and he has to ask a servant, what's going on? He's the only person in the town that doesn't know what's going on. He's just generally, un- have you ever been generally unaware? Ever had that experience before? No? Never, nobody here has ever been generally unaware. Okay, got it. Can I tell you something? You're unaware of how unaware you are of your unawareness. Okay? All right? You ever had an experience where you go to lunch, you come back to work, you had spinach for lunch, but you talk to like two or three people, then you go to the bathroom and you're like, what's up with that? It's like stuck on your tooth. 
Nobody told you were unaware. Then you leave the bathroom, there's toilet paper coming on their heel, you're coming out of there, then you go into a conversation that's already started before you got there, then you say something that makes it evident you didn't know the beginning of the conversation. Not you? Okay. Me either. Okay. Yeah, right. So there's one thing to be generally unaware, which is what we see at the beginning with this guy. He's generally just, he didn't even know there was a party at his house with his stuff, with everybody from his town happening. But then it gets worse. Look at verse 29. He's unaware of his own sin. But he answered his father, look, should be disrespectful, honor culture, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, let me just tell you something. This is untrue of any person at any time ever. There is no kid that's done everything that their parents told them to do, right? All the parents said amen at that moment. But you were a kid once too, right? Like there's no kid, there's no kid that did everything their parents told him to do. So how can this guy, he's, so un, he's unaware of his own sin. Can you identify? So here's the reality. You might be an older brother if you think that you are the standard for all that is right in the world. Now before we start laughing at all these other people in the room that do that, let's just think about how would we do that. If every time you hear a sermon, you immediately think about who you know that needs to hear that sermon. My spouse needs to hear that. They're, I'm sitting next to them. They need to hear that. I got a cousin. I wish my brother were here today. Talk about forgiving people. You need to forgive him, but you're thinking about the need to forgive any, right? You might be an older brother. If you ever drive in your car and you drive up behind somebody and they're going too slow and you think, what? Don't you have anywhere to go? Then you pass that person. And then some maniac comes blowing by you and you're like, the maniac in that car. So which is it? Is it slow? You are the standard. Now I see how this works. You might be an older brother. If you ever see a crime on the news or the paper, it happens in your own life, somebody you know, that's so heinous you think to yourself, how could anyone ever do that? Oh, you don't realize the depths of wickedness and deceitfulness of your own heart, huh? You might be an older brother. See, older brothers, they're... They're unaware. I've never, I've, everything you've given me to do, I've done it. Let me give a few, and it might be the older brother of me that can observe this in this passage. A few sins this guy's guilty of in this passage. How about this one? It's one of God's top ten in his book called the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. It's the first commandment with a promise that it'll go well with you and you'll live long on this earth. Look, is what he just says to his dad. Okay, Mr. Look, let's talk about, let's look at some of the sin in your life. How about later in the passage when he starts talking about his brother's sin, because here's the reality about older brothers. While they're unaware of their own sin, they're oftentimes acutely aware of the sin of others. He starts looking at his brother. He, he doesn't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God. He gives bonus material. and Love your neighbor. Listen, I don't know if you've read Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but a Pharisee asked Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, everybody who comes across your path. So you know what that means? That means the guy who lives in your house that shares your DNA, who's your brother, is your neighbor. Not getting those two. Uh, we haven't mentioned jealousy, gossip, pride. You can see all these things, bearing hate that's here. How about lust? Oftentimes that leaks out. And what about him here saying, he went and wasted all your money on prostitutes? How do you know that? 
He went to a far-off country. You didn't even know he was back. You haven't talked to him. I think, and we don't know this, I'm just speculating, but I think what's probably happened is while he's out on the field working, he's fantasizing about what he would do if he had all the money and had the courage to actually go where his heart's leading him, away from his father, and what, what would happen? He doesn't know what his brother's done, and the passage never says that his brother did this stuff. He says it. Lust, adultery, like it's all, there's a lot there, but he can't see it. It reminds me of what Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 6, we'll put the verse up on the screen. It's a popular passage about judging people. There's some other truths that we can see there. Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. But here's what we learn from that passage. One of the things that we can grasp there, it's possible to have a plank and not see it. Older brothers are unaware of their sin and the weight of their sin. See, it's possible, and you just know this to be generally true if you've lived long enough, it's possible to have an illness and not know it, to be dying. Like, I could be preaching to you right now, and my body be filled with cancer, and I don't even know it. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to keep preaching to you. I'm going to keep living like it's not true because I don't know that it is true. Or to have a vi- I talked to somebody after the first service that told me about some disease they had on their body, For decades, it was gangrenous that they didn't know about until this week. You could be dying inside and not know. Now, let me tell you something else. If while I'm preaching to you today, somehow I cut my jugular and blood starts squirting all over the place, I'm not just going to be like, all right, verse, next verse. Like, I'm going to clamp it down, be like, doctor and that. We'll figure out the message. Somebody else can do it. Our service is over. Church done. Thanks so much. Now, back into the spiritual realm, If while I'm preaching to you this morning, I become aware of sin in my life, an older brother, what I do, I'll just keep preaching. I'll just keep talking to you about what you need to deal with, the speck. But what I should do, I I should be like the younger brother, like come to my, repent right now. Get on your knees, deal with your sin. What is it, what happens to the younger brother? He comes to himself, I see my sin for what it is. Come to my senses. Remember the goodness of God? Turn back to I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. If you were here last week, I told this story about the daughter of the pastor that was, people were praying for. Then she got convicted and came back. Dad, I've sinned against you, Father. I've sinned against our heavenly Father. I need to deal with that. But older brothers, they're often they're not aware of their sin, and they're rarely, if ever, aware of the weight of their sin. They might take, yeah, I've just, all have sinned, all fall short. But the weight of sin, I remember a couple years ago, I was in a small group and asked one of the guys in the group who was a Christian leader, moral guy, I said, will you share your story of how you came to know Jesus as your Savior? And he shared the story about how he grew up, and he was one of those people, and might identify with this, that as soon as he was born, got home from the hospital, like parents had him at church. Like he's there at church from, he can't remember a time he wasn't at church. Grew up, really moral good person, new Bible verses. One time when he was seven years old, a pastor came over to his house to talk to him about trusting Jesus, asked him this question. He said, when you stand before God, he asked, why should you let you into heaven? What are you going to say? He says, well, I'll have the answer because I'm going to know the whole Bible by then. He knew the Bible. He knew lots of stuff. In fact, grew up in this community here in Raleigh and became a leader in even some Christian circles as a Christian leader, but didn't know Jesus. And he shared with our group what it was 
that brought him to Christ, and it was the weight of his sin. And he shared that with our, our, church, or with our small group, and I said, can I share it with our church? And he said, yeah, I text messaged him, and he text messaged me back. I want to read you the text message. He said, and he, I texted him really late at night, and so he texted me back. Uh, it took him a little while. He said, hey, man, sorry, I just saw this. The short answer, of, I asked him how he came to Christ. Like, what was it, that, what was it for him? He said, the real cost, the weight of sin was for the first time really understanding the way God views our sin instead of the way we view it and belittle it. For instance, and he gave an analogy, for instance, a lie told to your child, told to your spouse, told to a police officer or judge or told before Congress. In each case, it's a lie, but the outcome punishment could be far different and more severe as you move up the list. The fact that the lie was wrong doesn't change. It's the level of the person you've offended with the lie. Therefore, in our minds, we can dismiss it as a simple, everyone has sinned and fallen short, but what matters is the importance, the glory, perfection of God, of the God we sin against. If even our good works are but filthy rags, imagine how he views our sin. This new perspective is what made it click for me. I discovered that I had belittled sin because I was a good kid, went to church every Sunday, and was all good in that department. I was living my life like I didn't need a Savior. I guess you could call it cheap grace. I was living as if under grace, but I was never confronted with the weight of what bought me that grace. Sorry for the long text. Hope it's helpful. Of course you can use it. P.S. I'm still a wretched sinner, but I've been bought by a mighty God at an unfathomable cost. The tragic thing about that text message, it was a friend of mine, his name is Andy Moore. He died the week before I got to share that with our church. And I read that text at his funeral after he had stood before that holy God and didn't have his own righteousness to offer, but because he felt the weight of his sin had the righteousness of Jesus to give to that holy God. You see, the weight of your sin is not measured by the wretchedness of your acts, but by the holiness of your God. And we have a holy God. But older brothers, so busy looking how good they look, managing their stuff, rarely aware of their own sin, acutely aware of others, rarely aware of their own sin, almost never aware of the weight of their own sin. Second thing we see in this passage as we look at this older brother here, as Jesus tries to give a picture to these Pharisees of themselves, is they live like slaves, not like sons. And because I know there, there are men and women here and the spiritual reality is that you're son or daughter of the king, I'll say, oftentimes older brothers, and I get the gender doesn't match, live like slaves and not like sons and daughters. Because the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, you believe on his name, it gives you the right to be called a child of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says that when you turn to Christ, you are adopted into God's family. That is your identity in Christ. But oftentimes we don't live according to our identity, we live according to our behavior. And that's when we slip into this path of living like a slave instead of like a son. And that's what this guy was doing here. Look at what he said. He said he betrays himself, and he, like, he doesn't even have a relationship with his father. That's one of the reasons why he doesn't say father. He's got a transaction. It's a contract. Look what he says. Look, all these many years I've served you, verse 29. I never disobeyed your command. We already know he's wrong about that. Yet you never gave me a young goat. <laughs> oh, man. We'll talk about that in a second. That I might celebrate with my friends. Not with you, by the way. With my friends. I like how the NIV translates it. I think the, the thrust here comes out in the New International Version of the Bible. It says this, verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. 
Here's a slave mentality. It's based on the behavior that you have. It's, the, it's this idea that you're working for God somehow to win his affection, somehow to get him to, to like you more, maybe to work off some old sin. It's this idea, but here's what happens, and we don't usually say the second half of this. I obey you, and some of you search the scriptures, and you're looking for the commands, and you want to obey, but here's what you don't say that's true in your heart, so that you can pay. I obey, you pay. It's a contract, and really, you're in control of the contract. And some of you, you've heard versions of the gospel that teach this, like, if you, if you want God to bless you, then you've got, if you want to have grace in your life, you've got to earn it. It's not grace anymore, by the way, when you do that. And so what we have is this slave mentality that I'm going to do these things, and then you do the, whatever it is that you want are the other things. I do this, I, I don't do these naughty things, I do these good things, and then I want you to what? Give me the man of my dreams, give me the woman of my dreams, give me the job of my dreams, fulfill some dream that I have, do the things that I want to happen in my life. It's a slave mentality. And what happens is if that doesn't happen in your life, you become angry and bitter. What we see in this passage is not just angry in this moment. These are years of pent-up anger. Look, I'm slaving for you out here. I never disobeyed anything you said. You didn't even give me a goat. There's a lot of anger here. He's revealing his slave mentality. Now, some of you haven't gotten angry with God, but you get frustrated, right? You read passages like John chapter 10, verse 10. I come that you could have life, have it to the fullest. And you go, well, I'm living this Christian life, and this isn't to the full. I don't feel fulfilled. I feel very frustrated. Here's what you need to know. Behavior-based living never leads to fulfillment. It always leads to frustration. Behavior-based living will never lead you to the fulfilling life that Jesus came to give you. It will lead you to a frustrated life. And you might not have had some dreams shattered yet. You might not be angry at God yet. But you're headed down that path. And look at how the father responds. And think about all the things he could do. He could rebuke him about how wrong he is. He's talked bad stuff about his brother, like he's wasting his money. No, there weren't prostitutes. Let me tell you what he really did. And it wasn't as bad as you. It was bad, but it wasn't as bad as you say. He didn't do any of that. Look at what he says, verse 31. Luke chapter 15. And he, talking about the father, said to him, Son, oh. His words are not always harsh for Pharisees. He loves Pharisees too, which is good news for many of us in this room, by the way. That's me telling you, God loves you too. One of the reasons we never want to identify is because we think, God doesn't even love those people. It's because some of his harsh, sometimes harsh words are used for hard hearts. Sometimes he uses tender words, and our Heavenly Father always knows the right timing for each. And he uses tender words here when he says son. Now listen, this isn't the same word that he's been using for son all through this text. And so the original readers of this read this in the Greek, and they would see he's changed words here. Because if you go back and you look through the passage, you'll see that he would have used, the, it was a Greek word, huyas, it just means son. In verse 11, verse 13, verse 19, 21, 24, 25, 30, uh, you can go get the recording if you want to see that. Um, but verse 31, he uses the word technon. It doesn't just mean son. It means child. It's my child. So I think about what this father could have done in this rebuking him, disrespectful to his honor and this honor-shame culture. And what I picture him doing here is grabbing him by the face, saying, my child, my, my son. He's inviting him into intimacy, inviting him into relationship. He says, my son, what does he say next? You're always with me. And all is mine, it's yours. You, have, you already have your inheritance. You're not enjoying it. 
You're missing because your slave, menta- slave mentality is going, this is what, I've done these things, you owe me, here's what you haven't given me. You know what a son mentality does? Look at all that you've given me. It's from greed to gratitude and from frustration to fulfillment happens with this change of mentality. He's going, you're, my, you're not my slave. You haven't been slaving for, have you been slaving for me? That's not a relationship, that's contract. What I want with you is a relationship. And then look at what he asked for. He said, you didn't give me a goat, verse 29. I laugh at that. That's such a ridiculous request. Like I was driving with my kids yesterday and we were driving down the old Carpenter Pond Road and there was this bunch of goats out there. And I thought, that is a nasty, stanky, messy ant. Like if any of you ever think about a gift to give to your pastor, <laughs> never give me a goat. Like if you give me a goat, I'd be like, what did I do to you? Like why are you so mad at me? He asked for a goat? Like he says, my son. I think if, I, if one of my kids gave me, I'd be like, hey, goat boy. Like what are you doing? Give me a goat. And you, some of you might think to yourself, but agricultural society, you don't understand. You live in the suburbs, sky. You don't know the Bible. Let me tell you the Bible. Here's the deal. A goat is worth about one-tenth of what a fattened calf is worth. And the father doesn't say, you want a goat? You can have a goat. I'll give you a fattened calf. He goes, it's all yours. You just don't even. See, older brothers always shoot way too low with what they expect from life and what they expect from God. So it reminds me of a quote C.S. Lewis gives. C.S. Lewis says that, we're like kids playing with mud pies while there's a vacation at the sea awaiting us. We're content to mess around with drink, alcohol, and sex, and like debauchery of this world. We think that's going to satisfy us. He's going, no, no, no. There's so much more. And here, this father's saying to them, what does the son want? What does he want? The perfect marriage? What do you want? What do you want? The perfect job? What do you want? The perfect situation, circumstances? He's going, I'll give you eternal joy in me. What I want is relationship with you. You're not, you're not a slave. That's why we put the sandals on the younger brother. That's why he's saying to this, you're a son or daughter of the king of kings. And what I want with you is intimacy. It takes us to our third characteristic. What we substitute with intimacy is oftentimes activity. See, what older brothers do is they mistake activity for God for intimacy with God. Older brothers will mistake activity for God for intimacy with God. And so what you see here with this brother is well, the father is in the house having this party with his younger son. The whole city's there. They're all together. He's out in the field working. He's busy. He's got to ask, what's going on? And then he's angry. How many of you here are busy? If I were to ask you, don't even raise your hand. Don't raise your hand because you know what? There will be that one guy that he's lying because he won't raise his hand no matter what question I ask him. But then also it's like you have to feel guilty if you're not busy. In our culture, like, you're supposed to, everyone says, I know you're busy. I know you didn't call me back because you're busy. No, I didn't call you back. I didn't want to talk to you. No, whatever. Like, we're not honest about any of that stuff. We hide behind our busyness all the time, right? Like, everybody here is busy, and then you're a Christian. And so, of course, you're going to be busy as a Christian, right? Because, like, a good Christian has to be a busy Christian. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, act busy, Jesus is coming back. There's so much wrong with that. Like, there's so many things wrong with that. Like, if you have that bumper sticker in your car, we're going to pray at the end of the service, get out there and leave so no one judges you. That's a terrible bumper sticker. First of all, you think you're going to fake Jesus out? Like, at the last second, he's going to come back, and you were, you were serving in Sunday. He's like, oh, we must have a relationship. He knows. Ain't no Jesus juke on Jesus, by the way. Some of us think that's, that's how we have a relationship with God. You get busy. He didn't even say be busy in the bumper sticker. He said act busy. <laughs> he was such a hypocrite. Anyway. But we think that. That our busyness somehow is replacing the relationship we're supposed to have. 
And so we replace our activity for God, for intimacy with God. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, and it gets real complicated, and we don't have time to unpack all of that, and I'm not your counselor here about why you might do all that. Some people do it because they don't want to deal with the first characteristic we talked about. I know if I get close with you, you're going to reveal stuff about me I don't want to deal with, and so I'll just go do stuff for you. Some people don't want to deal with the second thing. It's because, I, I, yeah, I do. I want you to owe me. I want to control this relationship, so I'm going to have this one. I'm just going to be busy so then I can blame you when you don't do what I want. There's lots of reasons why we do this. But here you see this guy doing the classic story in the Bible of this happens a little bit earlier in Luke. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's the story of Mary and Martha, these two sisters. They live together in this house, and Jesus comes into this town. Martha invites Jesus to the house, and then Mary goes and sits at his feet. And Martha's like, lunch ain't going to make itself. She starts making lunch. She starts going through doing all this stuff. And that's not exactly how the Bible says it. That's just like my paraphrase of that. If you read, you know what the Bible says? It's real interesting. The Bible says that Martha was distracted with much serving. Well, that's interesting. The Bible, it's okay to serve. Jesus came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom. You're here back in our First Corinthians series. Everybody has a spiritual gift. We're all supposed to serve the body, use it together but you can be distracted by your service and miss the relationship. Let me read you what the pastor says in Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, uh, where is it? About verse 40. It says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, <laughs> parents, your kids ever come to you and try and get you to correct their sibling? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I'm cleaning my room all by myself. She made the mess. Like this is how this goes. It's not my house at least. Tell her to help me. You, because you have more authority, tell her to do what I want her to do. I'm going to control her through you. And here's what God oftentimes does. When you go to the him so that he'll deal with somebody else's problem, oftentimes he holds up the mirror. He says, let's deal with what's going on in your heart. That's what happens here. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. We don't even talk about today's lunch. You're many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, intimacy, which will not be taken away from her. What about you? You substitute activity for God, for intimacy with God, and what do you do? Well, first thing, it's like the younger brother. You've got to see it. You've got to come to yourself. You've got to realize it and, re and ask yourself questions like, do I love God? We sang words. We love Jesus. Early. Do you love God? Do you, do you think God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? I read an article this week talking about a seminary professor she was teaching this class of 120 seminary students, and she asked the class, how many of you believe, not just know, but you believe that God loves you? 120 students. I want you to respond to me, okay? I'm asking a real question here. How many do you think said yes? How many? Go ahead. Give me some numbers. 10, 12, half, all of them. Answer was two. You couldn't have known unless you read the article. Two students out of 100, now think, let's remember, put ourselves in the story, 120 seminary students means they're training to be missionaries, pastors, to teach the Bible to your kids at Christian schools. Only two of them really believe that God loves them? Then what do you think it is in this room? Our, our leaders don't even believe that God loves them? Now they know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, I'm part of the world, God must love me. Like, I'm talking about you know it. So what needs to happen? Let's read you Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says this, and, and Romans chapter 5 verse 5. It'll be on the screen. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The interesting thing in this passage is the tense of the verb for the Holy Spirit being given to us is a one-time thing forever. 
But the tense of the verb for the love being poured into our hearts by the, you don't pour love into your hearts, the Holy Spirit pours love into your hearts, it's repeated throughout your relationship. It wasn't just at the beginning when you came to the cross and came to Christ. Is he having an experience of the love of God being poured into your heart? So how does that happen? Well, it's not wrong to know stuff. You know, it should have. You read the Scriptures and would, should long for that to experience, like this series that we're going through, should long to experience that kind of love and also recognize whether you have it. Like, how many of you here watch cooking shows? How many of you guys watch cooking shows? All right. It helps me know how much I have to describe this. How many of you here watch cooking shows? I'm going to ask a follow-up question here in just a second. I don't know which ones. I don't even care what channel you watch, any of that kind of stuff. How many of you watch cooking shows and then don't go eat something while you're watching it? Raise your hand. Anybody? I see one, two, the really self-disciplined, or you watch on the wrong show. So that's some, one of those two things that happening. <laughs> see, sometimes I'll watch like Bobby Flay, and he'll have all these spices and things. I don't even know what he's making, so I don't want to eat that. Like, I, don't even I have no idea. But if I watch Triple D, you know, Guy Fieri on there, I'd be like, tacos, duck confit sandwich, burgers the size of his head. I'm like, I got to go get something to eat, right? And I might go get a bowl of cereal, like he's eating this huge burger, and I'm like, golden grams, but at least I'm eating, you know? <laughs> because what happens is I, they describe, I'm not tasting anything by watching it on TV, sitting in somebody else's life, hearing him to describe ingredients, but it whets my appetite that I want to experience it myself. So you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You read Ephesians 3, and Paul prays, I want you to know the length and the height and the depth and the width of his love. You read Romans 8, there's nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can't out God's love. You can't earn God's love. It should make you want, I want, pour that into my life, God. Do you want, you, how are you going to love him if you don't even think he loves you? The Bible says that's how we love him, he first loved us. You've got to pour his love into our lives. That's an experience that happens. You've got to experience it yourself. Do you want that? You can't replace that intimacy. And the key to intimacy is trust, by the way. That's true in any relationship. Trust with a spouse, trust with a friend, and your relationship with God. The Bible word we use is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He wants intimacy with you. He wants relationship with you. That's why he's coming after you. I asked you at the beginning of this message if you had seen the milk carton kids and asked you to imagine if you had seen your own picture on a milk carton. Some people say one of the reasons why they got rid of that whole experiment was because it wasn't producing much success. No one really tracked it, so we don't know the exact numbers of how many kids were found and how many weren't, but we know one that was. Her name is Bonnie Loman. Bonnie was abducted from her father when she was three years old. And here's a picture that appeared on the milk carton. It would have been black and white. But what happened was she was actually taken by her stepfather and mom. And they traveled to different places, Spain, Hawaii, Colorado. They went and lived in different spots to try and not be tracked down. People didn't get to know them too well. Bonnie didn't go outside very often. But one day she went to the supermarket when she was seven years old, four years later, with her stepdad, her abductor. And she saw herself on a milk carton and realized it was her. And you know what her stepdad said to her? Don't tell anybody. We'll keep this a secret. Some of you, as we've been going through this passage of Scripture, have seen yourself here. But maybe because of your, you've been conditioned through church, maybe it's Satan whispering in your ear. The temptation is, don't tell anybody. Let's keep this a secret. Bonnie didn't keep it a secret. She told the neighbors. The neighbors found out. They called the police, and she was reconciled with her father. What about you? One of the things I love about this story is it doesn't have an ending. There's a tension here. Have you, have you noticed, like, the, with the, maybe that's one of the reasons why church always focuses on the first brother. 
Because there's reconciliation. There's an ending. We can tie it all up, and it looks nice, but there's no ending in this story. He just said, the father says in verse 31, and he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It's all these themes to this passage. Lost things found, joy, rejoicing, pursued. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Remember who he's talking to, verses 1 and 2. He's talking to the older brothers. And he's saying, Pharisees, come into the party. Come celebrate. You can stay out there and keep being busy in the name of God. And one day, you're going to stand before me and say, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And say, I never knew you. But I'm inviting you. Come to the party. Come on. Some of you older brothers here, male and female, you've got these older brothers, you're unaware of your own sin, activity for intimacy, don't keep it a secret. Have today be a turning point in your relationship with God and acknowledge it before Him. Come into the party. 